Now, it's been pretty clear that over the past couple of years that the world has been in a bit of a hope deficit. There's been moments that have been lacking in hope over the past couple of years. When, uh, when I first heard the words of, uh, of coronavirus or uh, COVID-19, the big question that everyone had was, how long is this going to last? And the answer was generally um, about six to 12 months. We're a little bit after six to, uh, to 12 months, so um, it hasn't worked out quite the way that we hoped it would, but we needed to know at the beginning how long is this going to, to go for. Earlier on this year, there was a, a hope that, uh, that now we have this, uh, these miracle vaccines that are going to solve everything in there and not going to be any more issues. And then, even over the past couple of weeks, there's been this new strain of Omicron that has come out. Now, I don't know about you, this is a quick side note, but this is my favourite name of a, uh, of a COVID variant that I've ever heard. I've already said to, said to Sarah, my wife, I think we're going to name our first child Omicron. It is the great, great name. And then we'll go from, uh, do the other Greek letters uh, after that. At all these different points over the past couple of years, uh, we've gotten our hopes up for different things, but our hopes and wishes and thoughts haven't always been met in the way that we were hoping them to, to be met. And yet there is something inherent within every single one of us that needs hope to exist. We need to have this thing inside us that expects for something more and greater uh, that is within us. There's a really well-known quote that is uh, attributed to Lewis Mumford. You might have heard this before, which says, A man can live with three weeks without food, three days without water, and three minutes without air. But he cannot live three seconds without hope. It's often been said that even more than our physical needs, that hope is the greatest need of every single person. Now, when I first heard this quote and have heard that hope is the greatest need for every person, my initial thought was that's overplaying the role of hope in our lives. That's uh, overestimating the need of hope within us. And yet, we can see examples all throughout history that hope is something that has sustained people even in the darkest moments of their life. There are countless examples that come, uh, that come out of one of the darkest moments in all of human history, which was the Holocaust. This dark, evil time in history where millions and millions of Jewish people were killed and yet, even in these moments when a lot of these Jewish people were in concentration camps, thinking that their death was coming soon, even in those moments, they were able to experience hope. There are countless examples that we can see out of this time in history. A well-known example is this guy, Viktor Frankl, and there's many others, including a lady called Edith Eager, who was another Holocaust survivor. And she said that hope tells us that life is full of darkness and suffering, and yet, if we survive today, tomorrow we'll be free. And so we can see that this is true. 
that hope is an inherent part of our humanity and it is the greatest need in all of us to be able to keep us, uh, keep us going. But the hope of a, of a follower of Jesus is not the same as the hope that we speak about in the rest of the world. It's not a wishing for something or a wanting for something to happen. There is more to it than that. There is an assurance involved in Christian hope. A pastor called John Piper says it like this, that biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, but it expects it to happen. And this is the hope that we have in Jesus when we come to the Scriptures. That there is an ultimate hope in the future that will become a reality for us. This is the greatest hope that we have, which is a hope of eternity. An assurance that one day everything will be made right. And yet sometimes I feel like this can be a, a morbid way of thinking for us as followers of Jesus, that the only time we are really able to understand hope in Jesus is at the end of everything, when we, when we die. That's all that we have to look forward to as followers of Jesus. But I don't see that as the picture of hope at all. Sure, our ultimate hope is our eternity that we get to spend with Jesus. And yet that's not the only hope that we have that's revealed in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, to 19, uh, 15 verse 19, I, I think we see this truth um, demonstrated because it says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Now in this verse, it's pretty clear to see that the hope that is spoken about primarily is the eternal hope that we have after this life with Jesus. That is our ultimate hope. But it's alluded to that there is hope for this life right now. And that's partly what we're going to be looking through over the course of this series, over these uh, four weeks that we'll be going through this. We are going to be spending some time looking at the, looking at the eternal hope that we can have in Jesus, um, but we're also going to be understanding the living reality of hope that we have right now. It's pretty clear when you look at Jesus um, and the events surrounding Jesus that uh, hope is also something that surrounded him. Mary experienced hope when the angel came to her and told her that she was going to give birth to this son named Jesus. The birth of Jesus brought hope to those who were there, even though it was a stinky manger, there was still hope that was, uh, that was there in that moment. The disciples, they experienced immense hope when they saw Christ raised from the dead. But the hope of Jesus didn't just come when he came to this earth. There was a hope that was leading up to his birth all through the Old Testament. And this is what we're going to look at today. The hope that led up to the birth of Jesus, even hundreds of, year before, hundreds of years before he was born. Throughout the Old Testament, there was uh, prophecies that began to unfold of 
a coming Messiah who would come to this earth and bring hope to the people. And Jesus fulfilled over 300 of these prophecies that we see throughout the Old Testament, but none clearer than Isaiah 53. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to open up to Isaiah 53, and this is where we're going to be spending our time this morning. Looking at one of these prophecies of Jesus and how he... um, how he fulfilled this prophecy in Isaiah 53, which says, Who believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed." We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered... He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Struggling with transgressors, jeepers. Now, when we look at, uh, at passages like this, we have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and we can see all of the ways that Jesus clearly fulfilled many, uh, many of the things that are listed in, in this passage. But instead of approaching something like this with the benefit of hindsight, it's far better for us to step into the passage and read it as the original people would have read it. And that's what we're going to do. We're trying to step into the passage of Isaiah 53 during our time today. And as we step into the passage, we begin to see some of the things of who this Messiah is going to be, the Messiah who, uh, who is going to come. And the first thing that we see is that the Messiah was going to be something that no one expected. 
Some of the words that were used. There is no beauty or majesty. Nothing in appearance that we should desire. People hid their faces from him. He was despised and held in low esteem. This language of the Messiah was vastly different from the understanding that people had of who the Messiah was going to be. Their expectation of who the Messiah was going to be was that he would be an earthly king and he would come as a warrior and he would conquer other nations and he would set up uh, the nation of Israel that would have an earthly kingdom that would never end and never fade. This was the expectation of the, uh, of the Messiah, the servant who was going to come. And yet what we see here is that this is vastly different from, uh, from what we were expecting. This is not who, who Jesus was when he came here to this earth. He was a regular Jewish guy born in a regular Jewish town in a regular stinky manger with regular stinky animals. And he grew up with a pretty regular job. Jesus was a regular guy. When you looked at him and saw him, you wouldn't have seen anything in particular to attract you to him physically. Yes, he was fully God and fully man, God in human flesh, but there was nothing in physical appearance that would have attracted you to him. Now, we know this when we look at him, when we, uh, when we see Jesus in Scripture, and yet sometimes even today, we can have ideas of what Jesus might have looked like that are vastly different to what we see uh, even displayed here in this passage. I was just doing a quick search of uh, images of Jesus uh, over this past week, and this is one that I saw as I was doing a, uh, a quick search. This is a little bit different to looking despised and rejected. This picture of Jesus, just so you know, it's not a photo, okay? Just for anyone there who might have been been unsure. He has the most well-done hair I think I've ever seen. His beard is amazing, better than any of your beards, I'm, I'm sorry. His eyes are, are pretty magical and I was, uh, if you're in my shoes and I could look a little bit closer, I'm pretty sure that this picture of Jesus, he's wearing lip gloss in it. He is a, uh, a very attractive looking Jesus who is having a pose that makes him look, it's just very uncomfortable really. This is pretty different from what we see in the first four verses of, uh, of Isaiah 53. He had no beauty, no majesty. There was nothing in particular about his appearance when he came to this earth that would have attracted us to him. And for some reason, even in our society, when we have the benefit of hindsight, we have still decided to paint these portraits of Jesus that are not like how he really was in person. Our amazing looking Jesus that seems to radiate gold wherever he goes. So when you picture Jesus in your mind, that's the first thing that we can just really see, that we can see clearly here. When you picture Jesus in your mind, remember that he was a normal person. He looked no different than any one of us here today. In saying that, he was God in human flesh who came to this earth. 
So that's the first thing. The Messiah would be someone who is unexpected. And the second thing that we see is that the Messiah would bring healing. We can see this in verses 4 to 6. They are um, abounding in rich meaning through verses uh, 4 to 6. One of the things that we see in verses 4 to 6 that's, uh, that would have been pretty familiar for the readers at the time is the idea of substitution. So someone in, uh, from the law of Moses, they would sin and a sacrifice had to be made on their behalf, a substitute had to be made on their behalf for the forgiveness of, of sin. So someone was, uh, something was sacrificed in the place of sinners. But here, the substitution that was going to be made is not an animal, it is not a creature like the law of Moses, but the servant, the Messiah himself, was going to be the substitute on behalf of sinners. And it wouldn't just be death that he would undergo, but the crushing that would happen of the Messiah, of this servant, would happen by God. This would have been astounding for the people to, to read, that this Messiah who didn't deserve it, this servant, would come as a substitution for sinners. And then it goes on and it tells us what the result of this substitution would be. Now, some have seen this phrase, um, by his wounds we are healed, and have taken that to mean that because of the, um, the physical wounds that Jesus went through here on this earth, when he was here on the cross, that because of those wounds, we will now have physical healing in this world, no matter what our, our circumstance is. But the context that this is written in, the healing that we hear uh, in this passage, is healing from transgressions and iniquities. It is our spiritual healing that Jesus brought about through his wounds and through what he, uh, what he went through on the cross. So there's the first couple of things that we see. That the coming Messiah would be unexpected and what no one thought he would be. The coming Messiah would bring healing, in particular spiritual healing, to those who would believe in him, but he would also pay a great cost. From verses 7 to 9, Isaiah continues his thought regarding the suffering of the, uh, of the coming Messiah. But the way that Isaiah continues his thought process in verses 7 to 9 is he's not addressing the Messiah who would, uh, the suffering servant who would come as suffering for sin broadly, is just a broad concept, but he says that this um, suffering servant will come and die on behalf of our sins, for the sins of my people. He begins to personalise what the uh, suffering servant would go through. No longer is it just this broad understanding of the, of the servant's um, dying for the, the sins and transgressions of many, but he personalizes it, personalizes it and understands that the Messiah would die for his people and also for him personally. Now, this can be a trap that we can easily fall into when we think about the death of Christ. We can think that he has died for the sins of the world, which is true, but he also died for you. 
He died for your sins. He died that your sins might be forgiven and you might have relationship with God. This is why we should never take sin lightly in our life because Christ paid the cost for you. So there's the first three things. The coming Messiah would be unexpected. He would bring healing. He would pay a great cost, but ultimately he would be victorious. The Israelites, they were familiar with um, with a sacrifice being made for the sins of someone, as we, as we spoke about before. But the difference that we see of this sacrifice and this substitute that would be made is that the, uh, the substitute wouldn't stay in the grave, but would be victorious. Yes, the servant would die, but in verse 11, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Once again, we see the new life of the coming servant and how it impacts others in that he will justify, bring life to many. And it finishes with this final picture of the coming Messiah being one who, although previously despised and rejected, previously crushed, he would now be seen as a victorious conqueror. And the way that Isaiah is trying to paint a picture here is like a warrior who is returning victorious from battle with the, uh, the spoils of war. That's the kind of picture that Isaiah is trying to paint here of the victory of, of Christ. A, uh, a great quote that sums all of this up is, uh, is from a guy called Barry Webb and he says, Many, many facets of the servant's character are revealed in this song. He is sage priest, sacrifice, servant, sufferer, conqueror, and intercessor. He is the channel of God's grace to sinners. In him, the holiness and mercy of God are perfectly reconciled. He is the key to all God's plans for his people and for the world. I think that's a beautiful way of summarizing and helping us understand who this suffering servant was going to be. Now, after reading this, how does this impact us here today? Was this just something to bring expectation into the Jewish people before Christ? Or is there something in this that can, uh, can affect us here today? And I want to give us three ways that this helps us understand, uh, this impacts our, our lives today. And the first way that this impacts our Uh, our lives, is that Jesus fulfilled everything listed here in this passage. Because Jesus fulfilled everything listed here in this passage and over 300 Old Testament prophecies, because he fulfilled all of that, we can have an assurance that what Jesus said is true. This is why our hope is not like the hope of the world. It's not wishful thinking, but there is an assurance that we have as followers of Jesus that what he said is true because of all of the prophecies that he fulfilled. That's the first way that this impacts our life. The second way that this impacts our life is, uh, is that everything that was true for the Jewish people in understanding that this Messiah was a healer and would die for for their sins, 
That is all true for us here today. That is probably the greatest truth that we see in this passage. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is something that you have accepted for yourself. You have understood that Jesus came to this earth as a baby. He lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. He was despised and rejected by mankind. And then he died for our iniquities and our transgressions, but then rose again victorious over the grave. All of that... The gospel message is true for us here today, which is a good message for us to hear. But the third way that I think this applies profoundly to us now as Christians, and to understand this third way, we need to step back into the passage and read it as the people would have originally read it, is, um, is that this whole nation of Israel, when they read passages like this, there was an anticipation that was growing within them, an excitement and expectation that, yes, this Messiah is going to come. There is going to be a redemption that this Messiah is going to bring to his people. They awaited so um, so wanting and desperately yearning for this Messiah to come now, so that when Jesus did come, there was already expectation waiting. But the third way that we see that this affects us today is that the Messiah who has come, he will come again. This Messiah who was unexpected, who brought healing, who paid the cost, who was and is victorious, that is the same Messiah who will come again. And when we look at Scripture and understand that Christ will come again, we should be filled with anticipation and expectation and wanting Him to come again. And this is not something that we just wish to happen, but there is an assurance that we know one day Jesus will come again. This is a great hope that we have as, uh, as followers of Jesus. Let's remember the, uh, that uh, our hope, the biblical hope, not only desires something good for the future, but it expects it to happen. And we should be this way inclined towards the return of Jesus. That great hope that every single one of us can have, that one day he will come back. We can't get trapped into the way of thinking that says, I want Jesus to come back, but before he comes back, I just want to. No, we just want Jesus to return. We want the Messiah who has come once to return again. And this time he returns, he will be coming in all of his glory, all of his power, all of his majesty. And it's going to be an amazing sight for us to see as we are welcomed into eternity with him. Let me just pray as we, uh, as we uh, prepare to sing. Jesus, we do yearn and look forward to that day that you will come again. Give us a greater anticipation and desire and want for that to happen now but also give us an urgency in knowing that because you will come again at any time, 
that these moments for us here on earth are, are precious and you have given them to us to share the gospel with those that we come into contact with. We see in your word that we don't know the hour or the day that you are going to return, but we know that it could happen at any time. So help us to live lives that are expecting it to happen at any time. And give us a hope in knowing that when you come back to this earth, it won't be as a little baby anymore in a manger. But you will be coming and the angels will be crying out, holy, 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 it's the Lord God Almighty. There will be angels singing and all creation will be exalting you as you come back to, your, to, this, uh, to this earth and you will make everything right. So Jesus, we look forward to that day and we ask, would you come? Would you come soon? Give us a, a hope, an, assure, an assured hope in what you will do when that happens. In Jesus' name, amen.